Welcome to BimmerCast number 70. It is July 14th, 2013, and we've got a special guest tonight. Brian Jocelyn is joining the BimmerCast, and uh, we're going to be talking about BMWs, as you would expect. Also, Brian's new project, Gran Turismo Magazine, which is uh, something that we've been interested in for a little while now, and we're going to get the... uh, the full details on it and everything that is going into it as well. So stay tuned. Okay, we're back. And again, this is Gabe, Bimmercast number 70, and special guest, Brian Jocelyn. Brian, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Gabe. So this is this is kind of cool. Obviously, uh, it's always fun to have a, a guest on on the show. And, and Michael is, is ironically touring the U.S. right now and unavailable. Um, so it's it's uh, going to be kind of a fun to just have a different voice out there. And um, you know, if you're going to try to uh, you know sort of bring the spirit of Michael with you, you have to become immediately. Uh, what's the word? A, a bit of a curmudgeon, I believe. He'd he'd, he'd appreciate that. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it, it's it's great to have you. I mean, you you come from obviously the automotive uh, circles from from uh, the I mean from really all over the place. But tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, most recently, I guess I, I came from Vortex Media Group. So for the last nine years, I worked with uh, with Jamie and George and the guys. Uh, producing content for VW Vortex uh, to some extent. Uh, we did MWorks uh, for a while, the BMW site, and uh, uh, also worked on Motive Mag, which is kind of our, our biggest uh, project that we took on. Uh, and then uh, more recently, I worked on Collaborator uh, uh, Magazine, which was kind of a, a breeding ground for what I'm, uh, what I've kind of evolved into Gran Turismo Magazine at this point. Uh, prior to that, I've got uh, many, many years of experience on the automotive retail side. I ran a couple of aftermarket businesses, uh, including one that I co-owned, um, and uh, started my illustrious career in the dealerships, uh, selling cars and working in the service department for uh, for many years in the in the early days. So I've kind of seen the spectrum from. Uh, you know, from people that hate their cars in the service department that people love them and spend lots of money on them uh, on the aftermarket retail side. That's actually very interesting. I think it's 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 always kind of cool to hear people's first jobs. By the way, in automotive, um, there's a lot of executives and a lot of folks out there running uh, big pieces of the automotive landscape that started at you know in a service bay at dealerships, which is pretty cool. Um, and one thing that I think is of note to Bimmerfile listeners, Bimmercast listeners, is of course Mworks. And um, I mean, we've been mm-hmm. we were fans. Uh, Michael and I have been fans of Mworks uh, going way back, obviously. And you, you guys did some fantastic projects at Mworks. Had some some great reviews. Uh, always really solid stuff. And one thing in particular that I think is worth noting was this ridiculous 318 is which i know you owned and yeah. and you and i have had conversations about this car in the past um but it was it was uh beyond immaculate i mean and you actually hand stitched portions of that interior is that I correct did. I, I i bought the car in uh, southern california sight unseen it would uh, belong to the brother of a friend of mine a pretty good friend of mine from the vw scene and uh i had a uh, a rabbit convertible that I wanted to get rid of. And I was talking to him. I said, I know this is crazy, but I want to get rid of this rabbit convertible. Uh, this is a car that I'd spent three years building and, you know, had it painted and upholstered and the whole deal. And uh, I kind of expected a back- backlash from him. He said, what are you thinking of getting? And I said, um, I-, I want a late E30 car. And uh, he said, well, my brother's got one for sale. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, that's quite ironic timing i said where is it and he said it's in huntington beach so you know we we sent some he sent pictures and and we did the negotiation all, all by email i sent him a check and had it registered he sent me the title and um i flew out there with my illinois plate and took my friend with me as uh, <laughs> as a sort of an insurance policy <laughs> and um we drove that car back from huntington beach to chicago in uh well, we drove it from Huntington Beach to uh, Las Vegas for a night, and then from Las Vegas to Chicago in 36 hours. Oh my God! So just a straight through uh, taking shifts. That 
is pretty hardcore. Was it incident free? That's the big question. Uh, well, <laughs> I got, I got a, a, an airplane ticket in uh, Nevada doing about 90 in it, um, along with a bunch of other people in a pack. Uh, but other than that, it was pretty solid. It, um, it had black vinyl interior and the air conditioning didn't work. And we did this in the middle of June. So, um, so we did a lot of sweating, uh, with the windows down, but, uh, the event, the, the trip itself was fairly uneventful. Um, I got it home and, you know, there had been a rattling noise that I just assumed was, uh, uh, lifters that needed to be replaced. And it turned out some of the oil pan bolts, uh, from the upper oil pan had fallen down into the lower oil pan. Oh, wow. We collecting around the oil pump. So miraculously we didn't blow an engine. Wow. Um, and I, so I, I had a lot of work to do once I got home with it, but it was, it was a typical Southern car, uh, yeah. faded paint, but no rust and, um, lots of cracked vinyl. You know, yeah, the seats yeah. and dashboard and everything were cracked. So, well, the E30 was notorious for that. I mean, I could, sure. I could probably close my eyes and 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 you know point to where the cracks were in that car. Um, Absolutely. But you, but you actually went about reupholstering the thing, and was it tartan plaid? Yeah, at the time, um, it was right around the time when Volkswagen was launching the Golf Five GTI, and. Um, you know, obviously our VW Vortex connection was pretty good at Volkswagen. And um, we gave product planning a call and asked if they had any scraps of, uh, you know, the, the plaid material laying around. And by some miracle, they sent a bolt of it out. So um, so I took the original seats apart and patterned them uh, from scratch. Uh, it's kind of the same thing I do with that Volkswagen uh, project prior to this. And um, so I used uh, new black vinyl for the for the outer parts of the mm-hmm. seats, the bolsters, and then uh, put the the tartan plaid uh, Volkswagen material uh, in the inserts. And um, <laughs> to test it all, I, I actually did my daughter's car seat first, just to <laughs> to make sure all the material was going to work together well and everything. So yeah. she had the coolest car seat for a while. That's Ironically, amazing. that that same friend who I bought the car from, whose brother I bought the car from. Mm-hmm. I ended up as a uh, as a baby gift for him. Uh, we had just enough material left over. He had actually bought a GTI, and um, I made him a pair of uh, seat covers for his wow. Recaro kids' seats. So he had he actually trumped me. He had cooler car seats than I did at That's one point. Pretty phenomenal, actually. That's a good story. Yeah. So um, moving on from the E30, so you you're clearly you 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 span marquees here i mean you're a vw fan you're a bmw fan you you tend to uh, dabble in quite a other car i mean you've got a, a, a range rover as well a land rover land rover land rover Lo- would love to have a uh, range rover but right <laughs> now it's just a land rover just a, a discovery yeah very s- subtle difference to so those who aren't familiar with, with the distinction between the brands the uh the land rover is is the workhorse of the of the brand right that's right yeah, mine's completely unglamorous. It has no sunroofs. Uh, it's got a vinyl interior, so it's uh, minimal trouble, mm-hmm. so to speak. Which is but, the way a Land Rover should be, I, I would assume. I, I agree, but I, I'll still take a Range Rover. So <laughs> they're they're handing them out, sure. Yeah. So, so let's talk a little bit about BMWs. I, I do want to, um, before we talk about your new magazine, and that's really one of the, the big things here. I want to get into the details behind it, talk about um, the whole Kickstarter program, a lot of different aspects of it, but but I do want to talk a little bit about what's in the news for BMW because it is pretty interesting right now. Um, the the first thing though that you and I should talk about because we were both there was the M6 Grand Coupe launch in Austin, Texas, and I recently wrote the review. In fact, I, I'm I'm attempting to edit the video tomorrow of that of that track day, but I I was I was really blown away by a car that I should have already known, you know, I, I, I've driven the non-M version, I've driven the M6, you know, two different ways, coupe and convertible, and yet somehow the Grand Coupe just, it all came together in a way that felt a little different than those other two cars. It it, it really felt like it was the BMW flagship, if you will, that, that they've never really had. And yeah. then, you know, it, and then obviously you've seen it in person, it has such presence, yeah, I have to agree. I, I came into that event basically with my mind made up that, you know, and I'd driven M5, M6, you know, coupe and convertible as well, saying, well, this is 
just another derivative. You know, it's it's kind of going to be all the same. But I have to say it, it the M package uh, this time around seems to fit the the Grand Coupe personality so mm -hmm. much better. Um, it, it feels like a completely different car in some ways. I mean, dynamically, it's essentially the same, but um, I guess the overall sense of the car just seems a little, um, I don't know, a little more grand. You know, mm -hmm. little, it is. It is more of a flagship-feeling vehicle. Um, and I think because the Grand Coupe doesn't have a, a history that the M5 and the M6 have, mm -hmm. um, it's a bit of a clean slate in terms of, you know, the, the personality of that car. Yeah, That's absolutely. Take, anyway, yeah, it's it's and it's it's such a it's such a compelling car as far as presence. You know, you see just a standard, uh, you know, six forty Grand Coupe pull up next to you, and you can't help but notice it. You know, it's not imposing necessarily, but it's just right. got fantastic stance. Yeah. So it's it's just brilliant, and I think the other thing that was so brilliant uh, in my mind on that event was uh, the racetrack itself was the Circuit of the Americas, which. I had I had also made some assumptions about, you know, assuming that because it was a new FIA track, it was a new Formula One track, it was going to be boring, it was going to be, um, you know, not not lifeless, but because it you know it, it had to suit F one cars, it was just going to be so flat, so wide, and so featureless. To, I was expecting it to be more sterile. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't. I mean, clearly, you know, it was it was an amazing track probably the the second most intimidating track i've ever been on in my life sans nurburgring yeah i i have to say i i like the length you know i mean mm -hmm. what is it right at three and a half miles if i remember correctly yeah very similar to road america yeah sorry, just a little but... shy of road america you know at four and uh it's it's a good length and i think that's one of the reasons the car worked so well on that track was mm -hmm. because there was room to stretch its legs um you know it's 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 a big car, let's be honest. So it's yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a lime rock car. Um, you know, it's it works better the more road you have. But uh, that was a fantastic pairing, you know, the the track and the car yeah. in, that, in that situation. Yeah, I have to agree. Forty three hundred plus pounds uh, is not um, it's not a sports car necessarily. Uh, how how fast did you get it on the back straight? Uh, you know what, to be honest with you, I forgot, I, 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 it's in my article, but I think it was between 145, 150, something like that. It was, it was up there. Yeah. And it was, it was, uh, when I did hit the highest point, um, I frankly, I, I, I'll break myself. <laughs> I mean, basically <laughs> I, I was, it was one of those where like, Oh, 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 oh. and then you kind of like roll into it, but like, nope, meant to do that. Yeah. I think, How about you? I, I think it was essentially 150, just topped 150. Yeah. Um, you know, and the, the, the carbon brakes were phenomenal. Oh, but, amazing. You know, I felt myself with each lap taking more and more risk. And uh, mm -hmm. I think I had a similar incident to you where <laughs> it was probably just slightly overbraked it. So, yeah. But yeah, I think about 150 was where we topped out. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like we're right about the same spot. It was, it was a, a, a great day, definitely. Um, but I want to move on really quickly before we talk sure. about um, Gran Turismo and uh, and your magazine. I do want to talk about probably the most timely thing from BMW, and this one to me is 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 probably the biggest news for BMW in 2013, and that is the launch of BMW i and and the i3 in particular. And as as I think everybody knows who's listening, BMW i is. BMW sub-brand for electric and mostly electric vehicles. And then the i3 is the brand's first product. Of course, the 3 should give you a pretty good ind indication as to how important this, this product is. It's going to sort of match up loosely with the 3 Series, but on the electric side. And the i3, we've known it for some time. We've seen it uh, in concept form for probably three, almost three years now. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be pretty much what we saw in concept form. It's, it's a tall vehicle with tall wheels and tires, very narrow, um, from a, you know, created from a monocoque chassis uh, with uh, a lot of aluminum and, and, if I remember right, plastic uh, body panels. Lots of carbon fiber too. I mean. Yeah, tons of carbon fiber, and so this car is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's fascinating. BMW has just released the specifications on it, and some some numbers really stick out to me. 
first off, the thing weighs just a little bit over 2,600 pounds. As electric cars go, that is incredibly light. Um, if I remember right, that's that's lighter than the Tesla Roadster, or close to it. I'll have to I'll have yeah. to do some double checking on that. Um, but you're talking about a car with very heavy batteries in it. It's it's quite a bit lighter than the Leaf. It's quite a bit lighter, like massively lighter than the Chevy Volt, which is 3,700 pounds. Uh, I think the Prius is 3,400. So this is a a very light car. So what does that mean? So it means that BMW is really trying to give this car a dynamic feel. It's also rear-wheel drive. All the weight is very, very low. And it has a, a very quick steering rack of short overhangs. It all kind of adds up to what could be a pretty interesting drive. And uh, the first early reviews are in already from the European press. And I've I spent some time reading uh, four or five of them today. And, and every single one of them was overly positive i mean from from an english press which doesn't necessarily like to be overly positive about such things they tended to love the feel of it and and just they were they were generally speaking uh i think somewhat surprised at how much they enjoyed the drive i haven't read any of the reviews yet but i i'm not entirely surprised by that i think bmw knows what's at stake in terms of it being a bmw still Mm -hmm. and um you know, it, it has to be an electric car, obviously, but it, mm-hmm. it can't sacrifice its BMW-ness to, uh, to do that. So I guess in a way, I'm not entirely surprised by that. Um, they have really good chassis guys, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely true. And I think there's so much, you know, you're right in saying they, they know what's at stake. I mean, so this is a brand new sub-brand. Uh, BMW basically shut down their F1 team. They moved tons of engineers over this program they spent billions of dollars billions of dollars on bmw i and they see this as the future and this of course being the most important product of their future they had to nail it and from all accounts thus far things look pretty good and you've got to expect there's a lot of people breathing kind of a sigh of relief in munich right now and with those early reviews and, and how the car seems to be turning out yeah. So we, we will see. We'll, we'll have our own uh, drive at some point here later this year. We'll see the car um, a little bit later this month, and, and we'll have quite a bit of, of news on it in the next few months. But um, interesting times, and, and certainly the, you know, the i3 is, uh, is going to be, in my mind, the most interesting car released by BMW this year. And that includes, of course, the F80 M3, which we'll talk about next show so with that all wrapped up brian i want to turn to what you're doing right now because it's actually a bit of a an incredible thing and i think it's sort of a um well i think we're kind of all jealous of you <laughs> i don't know if you should be jealous it's, it's been a ton of work um you know this this whole project has really been several years kind of in the you know in the planning stage um I'll give you the short version of the background. You know, I mean, as as I was working on uh, Kilometer Magazine at Vortex, um, it started to become clear that the type of content I enjoyed creating and and what we were trying to do with that in terms of being a, a little more um, high visual content, uh, more magazine like you know format, just just didn't quite work as well with the nature of the web audience. You know, we were trying to do long form, big, beautiful stuff. And the reality is that in my book, it still lives best in a magazine format. You know, I think when, when you pick up a magazine, there's an expectation of, of kind of disappearing and disconnecting maybe a little bit, you know, from, from all the distractions that, that really make the web the experience that it is. And so we were, we were kind of swimming upstream. Um, and, you know, we were already on to the European cars and motorcycle thing with, with Kilometer Magazine. So um, that's my wheelhouse. That's what I've always, you know, uh, <laughs> grown up with and mm-hmm. owned and, and quite frankly still aspire to, you know, some of the uh, some of the nicer vehicles that I haven't yet achieved. So, you know, it was a natural transition to figure out how to um, how to take what we were doing and, and I guess take it to the next level, which ironically comes 
back to print, you know, which was kind of the old medium. But at the same time, I noticed um, there'd been kind of this resurgence of, of really nice premium magazines. And um, there's a couple that I point to pretty regularly. One of them is um, uh, Overland Journal, which is a kind of an off-roading, you know, a travel adventure magazine. They do a quarterly uh, magazine. It's not cheap. It's, I think, $12 an issue now if you find it, you know, at Barnes & Noble. Um, if you subscribe, they do five issues per year, so they throw in a gear issue, and uh, it still works out to, um, I think, about $9 an issue, even on a subscription. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, you know, completely different uh, focus and different format than the, the typical you know, $7.99 subscription for a year, uh, you know, that the big books were putting out. But it was done, you know, it's done on nice paper. It's, uh, the photographic quality is phenomenal. The storytelling's good and the subject matter is good. Uh, you know, it takes them three months to put together an issue. So, you know, they have time to do it right. Mm-hmm. And um, more recently, I discovered a motorcycle magazine called Iron and Air. And they have oh, a cool. Kind of a similar approach, and they're they're like a fifteen dollar retail. Uh, and they just do quarterly, and they sell out. Um, uh, they sold out of the last issue at least. So, you know, with that in mind, that's kind of the approach we were taking was not try to do what Motor Trend and Car and Driver and Automobile are doing, mm-hmm. but kind of slow things down. You know, dig deeper into the content uh, that we want to create, and make the physical product as nice as it can be, and. Um, it's not cheap, but you know the the big publishers um, have a have a different business um, approach than than what the small publishers uh, have to take. So, mm-hmm. you know, we we're starting with a zero baseline in terms of cost. We've established that you know we want certain standards to be met. So that's there's a certain cost structure in that. And um, quite honestly, we're hoping we do it well enough that people are willing to pay a little bit for for the experience. I mean, we're, we're looking at probably an $8 cover price. So, you know, we're, we're shooting between the $6, um, you know, newsstand price on a, on a typical domestic magazine mm-hmm. and something like the 10 to $12 English imports, the Evo, the car, right. the Octane and stuff like that. So, so it feels like a premium product with that price. Yeah. And obviously you are creating something that in your hand feels like a premium product as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not, we're not churning out news, you know. We're we're hoping that the stories we're covering are a little more timeless, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the kind of thing you want to refer back to or pull off the shelf and show someone, you know, when you know, when a discussion comes up about a you know a particular model, you go, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've got on. this on the shelf <laughs> yeah. right up here. You got to see the way these guys did it. So I mean, that's that's what we're hoping for. That's yeah. that's I think the the best part of a magazine is that that permanence. You know, so much of of what we do on the web comes and goes and has, has forgotten in a very short cycle. Mm-hmm. And um, I think with print, you still have the opportunity to, to let it linger a little while. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's definitely true. I, I actually, you know, I'm, I mean, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. I'm, I'm extraordinarily digital um, for probably, you know, good or bad. But today I, I picked up and it was because I'm, I'm, um, I'm actually in a, in a spot where I have a bunch of old Evo magazines and I was heading to, I mean, this is full disclosure here. I was heading to the beach and I didn't want to bring my iPad. So I grabbed one and this is probably a four plus year old magazine. And I read the thing front to back. It was fantastic. And it was, it was basically like reading, you know, it was, oh, the content felt fresh because to your point, you know, they don't necessarily do it as news. They, they do it as just pieces. I mean, we're talking about cars. This car is going to be relevant you know, in 2009 and just as much as it's going to be relevant in 2013 because sure. here it is, you know, this is it. And yeah, if you want to read about it again, you should pull the magazine out or you should save the magazine, whatever. So I think it's, I think it's very interesting. Um, that point of view is something that, or I should say that perspective is something that, you know, isn't going to go away really. And even if it's on, even if it's in a digital format, creating a, a digital magazine that you can have to download anytime you want on your iPad with stories that are, you know, very timeless, I think is a, a great position. Yeah. Now, having said that, obviously, you know, we're, we're not completely, uh, uh, you know, of, of the old age where 
we're not looking at digital. We're going to launch with a uh, with a digital counterpart right out of the the gate. You know, so mm -hmm. the same content will be there. Um, it'll be optimized. We're looking at a at a platform that supports uh, Android and iOS at the moment. So we'll we'll probably just be doing tablet editions. Um, you know, for those devices. But it'll be available immediately. You know, there won't be a, a penalty, a lag time. A lot of, you know, print first publishers kind of hold back their print material and, mm -hmm. you know, allow it to go first and then hold back the, the digital stuff. Um, you know, we're going to be doing it in parallel. The The digital version will be um, optimized, you know, for the pad, you know, the iPad experience, the tablet experience. So it's not going to be a replica of the printed page. You know, it's not going to be a PDF. Um, some of the some of the Landover magazines I get are still doing that, and it drives me nuts. Oh yeah, I, I, they I never expand big enough. You know, the pictures aren't aren't ever big enough. Well, so. I'll just use I'll just call out Road and Track for that. I, I bought their their new issue, and I mean they may have changed at this point, but they recently redesigned. And I, I love I love their their new approach, and they've got some fantastic folks working there now. Um, but when I I bought it, and I said I just assumed I was going to have sort of the Evo you know iPad experience. I'm so used to, and wow, it's just basically a big glorified PDF that I could zoom in and out of. I think that's short term, though. The uh, the car and driver app was recently updated, and it's much more. Um, it's it's it'll blow you away compared mm -hmm. to that one. So mm -hmm. I think if car and driver, or rather, if road and track hasn't yet done it, that conversion's got to be right around the corner. Yeah, and it makes a big difference, and it's a huge difference. And once that stuff really starts to get automated with workflow. I think it's it's just going to make the whole digital uh, you know option much more compelling. Yeah. So that that's, that's, sounds fantastic. And just for, for the record, the whole idea of digital uh, simultaneous is uh, just from this guy's perspective very welcome. Yeah. Well, you know, we we recognize that you know the the idea of a magazine really in the last few years has evolved. I mean, the iPad really kind of was the game changer for that. Um, you know, we were trying to do magazine-like content on the web, and, you know, you're still connected to everything else going on when you're sitting in front of your, your desktop or your laptop. But the iPad experience kind of really made the digital magazine more possible. And so we didn't want to ignore that. We wanted to embrace it right out of the gate and say, you know, we're not – we're not saying print is necessarily superior or that or that digital is is the only way you know magazines will survive in the future we're embracing both you know and recognizing that uh, different people have different priorities you know different people read read a magazine you know in, in different situations I mean you still can't fire up your iPad when you're taking off and landing on an airplane but the magazines there mm -hmm. so um, so naturally you know if as a subscriber you'll have access to both. Um, and we're looking at a system that'll allow you to, um, you know, to activate your, your new stand purchase, you know, as well, mm -hmm. um, on the digital version or, or we're, you know, also my wife's an environmental educator, so, um, she's completely fine with a paperless magazine. And I know a lot of, a lot of people would prefer not to have paper at all. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you'll be able to purchase a, uh, a digital only subscription or, or single copy sales for that matter and never see paper if you don't. Don't want, want to. to. So. Yeah, I think that's 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 just nice to have that option. Although I think with the care that you're putting into this, um, and, and even from my perspective being very digital, I kind of can't wait to just get it in my hands. Yeah, that's good. It's <laughs> <laughs> really good to hear. But I mean, you're, the format of the magazine itself is pretty interesting too. I mean, so you're not doing the standard, you know, vertical layout for right. uh, magazines that you know all the buff books have. Yeah, we. We looked at, um, well, there's a little bit of backstory with that, too. I would kind of had this idea for a long time that, you know, cars in their natural orientation are, are longer than they are tall. Whenever you take a picture of a car, you almost always turn your camera, you know, in its natural pose, which is which is landscape orientation. But magazines, you know, to, in order to be seen on the newsstand, you know, are created vertically. And that's kind of been the, you know, the traditional magazine format. So I thought it was gimmicky, to be honest. But mm -hmm. then I saw a uh, kind of an alternative music magazine called Filter on the newsstand uh, at LAX last fall. And it was done this way. And it actually had a false cover on it just for the newsstand. So it would stand up and be seen. And you just peel that off. And then you've got your regular, you know, landscape-oriented magazine. And, you know, we looked at the, the ads and the way the 
the stories lay out, and um, it actually lends itself exceptionally well to, to cars and motorcycles on mm -hmm. the page. So the idea is that you don't have to, to split that beauty shot across the, the seam. Mm -hmm. and, Which uh, ruins, completely ruins that shot. Yeah, time. there's nothing like the focal point of the car being buried in the, in you know, in the fold. <laughs> yep. so, um, so we decided, you know, it can be done. Um, we've designed a, a cover that, that has our our masthead essentially, uh, you know, sideways so that it, it's appropriate when you see it on the newsstand, but really the, the priority is for the reader. Um, so, you know, the cover artwork, um, is oriented in landscape, even though the, you know, the logo is, is oriented in, uh, in a portrait arrangement. Mm -hmm. So it, it works both ways. And, um, since we really don't expect a whole lot of newsstand presence anyway, I mean, essentially we're down to like Barnes and Noble, mm -hmm. You know, unless you're and uh, the independents, maybe, yeah, fashion magazine or something like that. You, you know, the supermarkets and uh, you know the the convenience stores and all that. They're just not carrying a depth of magazines. Mm -hmm. We don't expect to be seen on on uh, traditional newsstands. So it wasn't a big priority for us uh, mm -hmm. to design it for the newsstand. Um, so yeah, the reader comes first. So we're not splashing a lot of headlines on the cover. We have a, a very simple feature bar that runs uh, below the main artwork and, and kind of tells, you know, the highlights of what's in there, but, you know, only to the point of the most important eight or 10 uh, articles. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's interesting. I'm just looking at the, uh, the Kickstarter page right now and just a really cool layout, really interesting to, to see something that is, like you said, different. So w one thing I do want to talk a little bit about is, is Kickstarter and, and your approach to getting this thing first issue off the ground sure so this is actually the uh the second kickstarter campaign i, I ran one back in january and um quite honestly i, I ran a three-week campaign and it was not enough time uh, it was a horrible time of the year to network with car enthusiasts you know there's no activities going on um and on top of that i had detroit auto show and two press events and a race to go to so it just you know my my marketing time um was horrible i just <laughs> it didn't work and there were, i had everything working against me on that one but we we got about 60 percent of the way there in three weeks um so i came back you know i've uh, done new assets i've kind of done a, a slightly new approach to you know to the campaign and the pitch um we've revised some of the the artwork and the design layouts a little bit since since that initial uh, pitch as well. So we've got the magazine more where we want it now in terms of, of the final product. And um, so for the second campaign, we were looking to round up our first thousand subscribers, you know, with a uh, kind of the average uh, Kickstarter contribution, according to Kickstarter is about $25. So, you know, a thousand people at $25 gets us to 25,000. Um, we've, We've had the campaign going a little over a week now, and our average contribution has been closer to the, uh, I think, the $80 mark. Uh, we have some some $100 offers that people seem to really be taking up. Um, so we're, we're getting, you know, good response in terms of, um, of the buy-in. We're just, mm -hmm. you know, not nearly as many people know about the project yet. Right, um, right. So I've been out working the, the events and, and all my personal networks, and yeah. obviously promoting on, uh, on venues like this well, as well. here we are <laughs> here we are so let's but, so let's get some backers i think this is one this is one thing that i can i can safely say uh the the, the bimmer file audience would really appreciate something like this just in general and um you know for the record i think you know we we definitely support you and support a, a product like this on the newsstands and and on our ipads uh, we need you know, I think we as an enthusiast, we need a, a product like this that doesn't just talk about new cars, doesn't just talk about the news as it stands today and tomorrow, but talks about these timeless pieces that may involve vintage cars, may involve new cars, may involve both. Right. Yeah. And honestly, that's one of the bigger distinguishers, um, you know, with the magazine is that we're not strictly a new car magazine. You know, we're not... <laughs> As I've talked to people on the business side, we're not trying to sell people new cars. We expect our readers to more or less know what they want. They want to get more out of their ownership experience. And in some cases, that means telling a backstory, you know, on 
previous generations of the car. Uh, mm -hmm. In other cases, it means you know interviews and and uh, personality profiles because there's a lot of great people that make this scene really what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, a lot of it is is the experience. You know, getting out and living with the car, doing something, whether you know it's a cross country drive or a driving school or you know club activity. Um, you know, so engagement with the vehicle is is really key. Uh, to separating our readers from from the typical buff books i always feel like uh you know the typical buff book magazine reader is uh is a guy that knows all the stats and all the figures and then drives a 15 year old crown vic and hmm. you know hasn't owned an interesting car in his life but knows all the facts and figures um you know that might be a mischaracterization but i, I we're really writing the book for the people that you know whose lives revolve around these cars so um so that's kind of the angle we take. And the motorcycles work into that as well because as I've gotten older, <laughs> um, you know, I'm in my early 40s now, but as I've gotten older in cars, you know, I've become more and more mastered. And um, on on my on my side, you know, I've, I've gotten better at driving them and, and kind of run out of challenges in some ways. Um, motorcycles have been a good alternative. It's a new... It's a new venue to, to try, but it's really an extension of the same passion. And um, so I think motorcycles work really well with, with this owner group. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's, it is interesting because there's not a lot of crossover just in, in terms of publications right now in motorcycles yeah. and cars. So. And, you know, you'll see the occasional, you know, Ferrari versus Ducati story in, uh, you know, in, in Car and Driver mm -hmm. or, you know, but they just don't. They just don't weave bikes in as an extension of the same passion. It's it's always looked at as this kind of foreign interest, you know, that that might get a little attention. But um, you know, bikes are just an integral part of life for a lot of uh, European car enthusiasts. I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Or at the very least, I think there's people like us who are just interested in bikes in general. Maybe we don't yeah. own them, but really kind of cool to see them around. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, I do, I do really appreciate you um, spending some time and, and talking a little bit about the magazine. It's, it's something that, like I said, we were definitely um, big supporters of, supporter, you know, supporter of the idea, and uh, and you know just in general, the the fact that uh, you're spanning the generations, if you will, and talking about things that enthusiasts care about. Thanks. I'm really excited to get this thing going. It's, yeah. like I said, it's been a long time in the in the making and uh you know we're just it's it's a tough thing to convince people you know to to bite on a on a product they've never seen and held mm -hmm. but i think once uh you know once that first issue is produced and you see some of the things we're going to do um it, it'll make a lot of sense yeah well i've held i mean i've held your prototype in my hand at the very least yeah and yeah. it's cool i mean the the whole idea of this thing the format you have it the size of it, the quality, um, and of course, you know, the photography and stories, it all comes together really, really well. And I think it's a, it's a pretty compelling piece. Thanks. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the first draft. What you saw was essentially the, you know, the concept version that we put together to, to show manufacturers at the Detroit auto show last mm -hmm. uh, January. So, you know, from there we've actually, uh, you know, fine tuned it quite a bit mm -hmm. and, uh, we're happier with the product. We're, we're looking at now on our end than, uh, than that first sample piece that we put together. So cool. Um, well, I think the, the only other thing I wanted to chat about was, and this is kind of really relating to what we were just referring, what we were just talking about. I think, I think one of the things that, that your magazine, um, is going to talk a lot about is this whole idea of a classic car and then the experience of driving the car and the visceral qualities of the shift and, engagement of the clutch and the, the feel and the steering and just the, the ownership of it. And, and I know that's something that we often lament being just gone from modern cars. Mm -hmm. But I, I do hesitate to say gone because I know that there's cars out there that do have that or at the very least hint at it from time to time. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to, to hear your take on it. I mean, what out there what out there could I go right now? And it obviously doesn't have to be BMW related, but what can I go out there right now and look for on the lot that would give me this kind of feel, this kind of classic, almost vintage feel, if you will. It's tough. Uh, not, not to come back to the BMW thing immediately, but you know, I think 
you were you were recently in a car that I was recently in as well, the the one thirty five IS, hmm. and I have to say I was kind of blown away by how analog that felt in in, in a good way. You know, it didn't have active steering. It didn't have uh, adjustable suspension settings. You know, there was, it was as it comes. And, uh, you know, it, it was a really good experience. I mean, to me, you know, the, the active steering systems, the, the uh, electromechanical uh, programming is just, has taken some of the fun out, you know, of, mm-hmm. of the driving experience. It's made the, the experience less direct, uh, more digital. And, um, you know, weighting up a steering rack isn't the same as road feel. Right. And, um, and that 135 IS really seemed to have, you know, for uh, especially for a modern car, mm-hmm. uh, a really natural uh, steering and, and chassis response. Um, outside of BMW, um, Porsche still does it pretty well. They're another company that really has their, their chassis dynamics down. Um, they They have you know, electromechanical steering as well, but they mm-hmm. seem to have found a pretty sweet spot in terms of that. I, I haven't driven anything with, with a better, um, you know, system than that mm-hmm. in terms of electromechanical. The last purely um, analog feeling car, for, you know, for real good reasons that I drove was uh, a Lotus Evora, mm-hmm. you know, with, if I recall, I don't, I'm not even sure it had power steering. It was, it was very direct. Uh, the brakes are, are extremely direct. The chassis was firm, but you know that, that typical uh, cliche of being you know taut but but supple. Mm-hmm. Uh, that car really had it. I mean, it soaked up bumps really well, but it was flat as could be through the corners. Um, but then mm-hmm. again, that's Lotus. You know, yeah. the reputation for chassis tuning. Um, beyond that, you know. It's really hard. Electromechanical steering, I think, is has it's been a blessing in terms of the user experience for for a non-enthusiast driver. Mm-hmm. You know, parking at low speeds is really mm-hmm. effortless, and, and fuel it, economy it, as well. And certainly, and fuel economy. Yeah, you can't deny the you know the um, you know performance on demand feature of of only needing you know a steering pump when you're turning. So, um, you know, I get it. I know that's the future. I know that's it's here to stay. But I, I kind of miss the. The more direct, I like a firm brake pedal, a firm clutch, you know, uh, some communication from the steering wheel. So, you know, I, I tend to, to be a little more interested in the driving experience on older cars, but, um, you know, the new cars right now are so good in so many other ways. So it's, you know, we just, we just spent, um, a weekend in a Mercedes. It was a 450, uh, GL 450. So the seven passenger SUV and, uh, Took it on a road trip, did about 80 miles an hour, you know, on the interstate the whole way with the air conditioning on and, mm-hmm. you know, TVs going and the whole deal. And, and we averaged, I think it was 19.7 <laughs> on the round trip, you know, with mixed driving and everything. Yeah. And it's only because all those, you know, efficiencies have been built into it. Um, it wasn't, a, you know, a fun car to drive in, in the traditional sense, but um, but it all worked really well. It's a, yeah. It was a great car. So yeah, I guess you make sacrifices. Um, I think that's why motorcycles, you know, Ex- exist these days. Exist and become more appealing. You it, don't have to go very fast. You, know, yeah. you can pick up a Vespa and get a great, thrilling uh, ride out of it for not a lot of money. And and uh, you know, it's it it is what it is. It's very real, and that's lacking. You know, in uh, in a lot of newer cars. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, the the one thirty five is is in my mind the 325 IS of this generation. Sure. Um, so just a fantastic car that is used. And to me, that's where it's interesting. Used under 30 grand, uh, mm-hmm. a couple years old. A lot of folks can afford them. It's such a great entry point into that brand. Outside of that, you're right. I mean, maybe the BRZ um, or FRS, Cyan FRS, uh, you know, it's it's not particularly fast, but it's certainly quick enough and it has fantastic feel and it's low to the ground. I love the fact the thing has got, yeah. you know. It's, it's a really responsive chassis. You're right, it doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of power. Um, but, uh, you know, it it's a point-and-shoot kind of car. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. it's interesting. I mean, I, I recently drove my, um, I recently drove a Ferrari Mondial 91 which is not necessarily the most attractive Ferrari of all time, um, certainly, but it did represent sort of, the, you know, this classic 
mid-engine V8 manual transmission Ferrari with gated shifter. This was the same engine the 348 had. In fact, this engine was basically iterated upon until the 360. So it was, in some respects, it was sort of the quintessential 1990s uh, mid-engine Ferrari drivetrain. And it is amazing how archaic it feels when oh, yeah. you first get into it. You know, number one, uh, it's all handmade. I mean, you know, you, you have no idea how, you know, these cars came out similar, let alone identical, from the factory <laughs> each time because they were all made by different guys, basically, um, and, and seemingly uh, constantly switching jobs based on a lot of the things I... I saw in that car now, but nevertheless, it was, it was a fantastic experience. You know, mm-hmm. I get into the car, you know, the, you, you sort of, you feel the touch points, um, you start the car. It, it's an experience. And, and I think that's one thing. And I always come back to that word. That's one thing we don't get. The experience is gone. And now we're, we're just given this, this thing in front of us. We know instinctively how to, how to turn it on, how to use it, you know, how to get the best out of it. Um, and way more efficient, they're way faster, everything is better except for the experience. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely cool to um to still have some of these cars on the market, but you do wonder where it's going and, and you know, you, you then you start to think, at least I do, maybe it's not that far from coming back. I mean, look at the new GT three, we haven't driven it, uh, I haven't driven it, nobody's driven it except for Chris Harris. Apparently, but it's it's a car that, the, from what he says, has uh, you know uh, uh, electric uh, steering that actually has feel. Suddenly, yeah. it's the first one uh, he claims. Um, you know, can they dial this stuff back in using software? I mean, you've got the uh, you know I've, I've I've got this JCW Roadster, this mini JCW Roadster um, that I've driven for the past eleven months and. The car's not perfect. The sport button totally like destroys any steering feel that I had before. But it does it does give you one hell of a nice rasp and pop out of the exhaust. All software. All yeah. software. And yeah. you know, it's it's kind of compelling. And it does give you a bit of an experience as you drive down the road at low speeds. So can they reverse this trend and create this experience or these experiences uh, with software totally rhetorical question but um you know should be interesting to see well there's a whole generation that won't know the difference too so yeah i mean i mean looking backwards from our generation you know i never had to tune a carburetor i never had to adjust drum brakes you know everything i've owned you know was really modern you know by by the standards of the day uh Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's that ongoing uh you know age gap that uh, that we all deal with but yeah i mean i think there's certainly potential for you know for tuning uh the experience back into it if it's if it's not entirely synthetic um you know i just uh, spent some time in a in a fiat 500 abart and that that was actually a, a rip roaring little car it's not oh, terribly yeah. fast either but you know, you felt like you were at redline all the time, and and you weren't getting in trouble with it. Yeah. Uh, you know, just tons of character. You know, you can do that when you have a straight through exhaust. <laughs> you know, um, a lot of personality in that car. But uh, you know, in the end, really a pretty safe car to drive. You know, flat out, you can't mm. get in a lot of trouble with it. And um, and it was fun. You know, you you were enjoying yourself while you're driving it. Uh, even though, you know, as long as you can look at the speedometer and see how slow you were going. Because it's not <laughs> ultimately a fast car. It yeah. Just, you know, but it delivers the sensation of speed. And I, I think that's what I wrote was it's not really how fast you go. It's how fast you feel like you're going. And, but that, I think you know, it's definitely true. It. I mean, that's why the Mini works so well. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's about an amazing experience at 25 miles an hour. You know, that that's kind of the speed we're all going anyway. Yeah. Exactly. So cool. Well, it's been a it's been a real pleasure, uh, Brian, to have you on the show and and uh, you know talk about obviously a lot of a lot of nonsense plus your magazine. Um, huge, uh, you know, definitely good luck to you on the magazine and, and huge kudos to uh, to actually getting this far and uh, getting really it seems to me is a fantastic idea out to the public. Well, I appreciate the. Uh... Uh, the opportunity to talk about it quite frankly it's it's been good and 
uh, we always have a good time when we're together. Um, yeah. So it's, what, what were you drinking, by the way? Oh, well, tonight, um, actually, this was, uh, let's see, Greenbush Brewery, which is uh, southwest Michigan. And it was um, their Hefeweizen, ah. their summer solstice or something like that. How about you? Uh, I had a glass of uh, Basil Hayden's. It's a yeah. uh, it's a bourbon from uh, I believe I believe Jim Beam distills it, but it's one of their uh, their special ones. Yeah, so that's you sound like you're you're on your way to being a Range Rover driver to me. <laughs> I'm getting there. I need a shotgun <laughs> next. <laughs> Uh, well, on that note, um, obviously questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, anything, shoot us a note over at bimmerfile.com. Um, but, uh, again, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Uh, many thanks to Brian Jocelyn for coming on tonight and we will see you soon. Cheers. Thank you. So tired of the way you make me feel. You got me so tired.